Our next reading is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 1, and reading through to verse 14. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went with Egypt, went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too much, much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Amen. It's a grim start to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, which we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. In those opening 14 verses, there is no mention of God. No mention of praying to God. Just as a disastrous situation from which all mention of God is absent. No sign of God's presence, no sign of God being at work. When we pray... We call on God's name and we invite his presence into those situations for which we pray. Some of them appear to be God-forsaken, but we ask for God to be present in them. Our role is to cry out with the psalmist, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping. Can I ask you, how many of you here know, or knew, or can remember your great-grandparents? Some shaking of the head, most people, yeah, one or two, one or two. If I were to ask you what you knew about your great-grandparents, what would you be able to tell me about them? My father used to tell me that my great-grandfather was disinherited by his parents for running off with an Irish chambermaid. He liked to give the impression that that, that my great-grandparents had been wealthy people, uh, but Sue did some research, and uh, nothing was further from the truth, actually. My great-grandfather was a labourer. At different periods of his life, he claimed to come from different parts of the country. He was the one who got a 15-year-old Irish girl from a southern Southwark slum pregnant, with a child who grew up to be my grandmother, whom I vaguely remember visiting as a child. 
It's 150 years since my great-grandfather was born, and in that time the world has changed beyond recognition. And I guess some of his genes must be lurking in my system somewhere, but I'm not aware that he's had much influence on my life apart from that. A lot happens in four generations. Five years ago, Mitt Romney was the Republican candidate to be President of the United States of America, but he lost the election to Barack Obama. In his nomination speech to the Republican National Convention, Mitt Romney said, we are a nation of immigrants. We are the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the ones who wanted a better life, the driven ones, the ones who woke up at night hearing that voice telling them that life in that place called America could be better. Mitt Romney has a personal fortune of around $250 million. So there's no doubt that for him, four generations down the line, life has got a lot better if his great-grandparents were first-generation immigrants to the USA. You can see how far that particular family has come in a relatively short space of time. Everything has changed. The book of Exodus starts by listing the 11 sons of Jacob who came down to Egypt to join their brother Joseph, immigrants into that country. At that point in time, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in total. Exodus lists just four generations from Levi, the brother of Joseph, to Moses. Moses' father was Amram, his grandfather was Korah, his great-grandfather was Levi. It's probable there were more generations than that. Sometimes genealogists skip the generation. It rather looks as if one generation spanned 100 years, which is possible, I suppose. Moses is supposed to live to 120. But if you take the text at face value, Levi was a first-generation immigrant to Egypt, and Moses was his great-great-grandson. And in that time, their world changed beyond recognition. But it had changed for the worse. Levi was brother to Joseph, the second most powerful man in Egypt, who, because of his God-given ability to understand and interpret dreams, had saved the Egyptian economy and country from disaster. He successfully predicted that seven years of plenty would be followed by seven years of famine. And by prudently stockpiling resources during the years of plenty, Joseph was able to ensure that Pharaoh didn't actually just survive the famine, he prospered and did extremely well out of it. Because if you have a monopoly of grain in a time of famine and people are desperate, they will pay anything to get the grain that they need. And they, they spent all their money, they sold all their land, they sold themselves into bondage to Pharaoh so that they could survive. Joseph ensured Pharaoh's prosperity in a time of need. And for that reason, Pharaoh was profoundly grateful to Joseph, who masterminded the whole economic plan and treated him and his family with huge favour because of that. But times change. Generations come and go. The years go by. And a new king comes to power in Egypt, one who, who knows nothing about Joseph. Maybe it was a change in dynasty. Maybe this new king was just more concerned about preparing for the future than he was about learning from the past. But for whatever reason, this group of immigrants who'd settled in Goshen and had had their own population explosion, came to be seen as a threat to be dealt with. And so, because even after four generations of living in Egypt, they were still a clearly identifiable people group, an identifiable people group, Pharaoh enslaved them. He oppressed them. 
He subjected them to forced labour in building and agricultural work. Who knows how long this transition from being welcomed to being perceived as a threat and then to being enslaved took. Probably took a while and the process would have been gradual. The erosion of civil liberties. A gradual move to single the Israelites out and to stigmatise them for being different. A process of dehumanisation. So many of them, they're multiplying like vermin. Gradually they came to be seen as being less than human and therefore a legitimate target for exploitation and enslavement. This summer in the UK, disconcerting statistics came to light. People being exploited as slaves in every city in the United Kingdom. The suggestion that the number of modern slaves runs into tens of thousands in the UK. Key sectors for slave labour now include food processing, fishing, agriculture, construction, domestic and care workers, and car washes. We may be eating stuff that's the result of slave labour. We may have been served by people engaged in slave labour. People are compelled to perform forced or compulsory labour in nail bars, construction sites, brothels, cannabis farms, and in our fields. They're not readily identifiable. The most common victims come from Albania, Romania, Poland, Vietnam, or Nigeria. And most are invisible. Victims can sometimes be identified by the manner of their dress, by the injuries they have, or by signs of stress, but some of them are not even aware of the extent to which they are being exploited. It's truly shocking to realise the extent to which people are being bought and sold for sexual exploitation, for forced labour, or criminal activity, or domestic servitude. It is a covert evil in our society that needs to be named and identified and stopped. The plight of the Hebrews in Egypt wasn't hidden in this kind of way. If you went to Goshen, or you visited the cities of Python and Ramses where they were being built, you would have seen the way people were being treated. There was no secret about it. It was open exploitation and subjugation. In Egypt, there would have been those who stayed away from those areas precisely because they preferred not to know what was going on. They preferred to pretend it wasn't happening. There would have been those who knew about it and felt awful about it and felt powerless to do anything to stop it. And there would have been those who knew about it and thought that these Hebrews deserved everything they got because they were different that range of responses meant that evil could flourish in the Egyptian society unchecked for a long time. And what about the Israelites themselves? It looks as if many of them had actually forgotten who they were. They'd lost their sense of identity. Four generations is a long time. 400 years, even longer. Jacob's grandchildren were quickly felt that Egypt was their home. Why not? They were being well-treated, Life was good, they were in a pleasant part of the country, 
They, they, were, they were respected. The, the stories of Joseph were well known. This was a great place to be. Their children would have known it, wouldn't have known anything different. As generations passed, Egypt felt more and more like home. What was the value in a story of how God had promised their ancestor Abraham a home in a different country, where life was so good where they were? And as the stories were told less and less frequently, the sense of being a chosen people, a people set apart to God, a people with a destiny elsewhere, that would have receded. Some remembered... Interestingly enough, as we'll see tonight, it was the Hebrew midwives who feared God and found strength through that fear of God to disobey the orders that came from Pharaoh. But otherwise we find only faint vestiges of a faith in God. When God appears to Moses when he's a grown man and introduces himself as the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Moses isn't at all sure that anyone will remember who this God is. What will I tell the people, he asks God, if they ask me who you are? It seems as if God and the stories about God have all but been forgotten. We started our service this morning thinking about Abraham's family, the family line running from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Levi and his brothers, Korah, Amram, Moses. Think about your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, if you knew them. Were they people of faith? You're here in church this morning, are you here because in some sense the knowledge of belonging to God has been passed down from one generation to the next, to you? It's easy, of course, to look back at the past through rose-tinted spectacles and fondly to imagine an age where people were more God-fearing than they are now. Yet there is some truth in that observation. So and I spent last week uh, in North Devon, and on the Hartland Peninsula we visited a church where headstone after headstone in the graveyard expressed faith and trust in God, devotion to God in the face of death and bereavement and sometimes tragedy. For people then, faith really helped them to make sense of life and mortality. And then the church was very much at the centre of the community and a key provider of education. For that reason, people's level of awareness of faith was much stronger. And if they didn't believe, they had a pretty good idea of what it was they didn't believe in. What doesn't seem to be in doubt today is that people are much more ignorant of God now than they were then. We look back. How far has faith been passed down from generation to generation to us How do we see faith being passed down to the generations who are coming up behind us? Today's society suffers from information overload. Writing in The Spectator, Damien Thompson attributed the decline in faith and church going in this country to what he described as a collapse in plausibility structures. He said you go away to university and suddenly almost nobody believes what you do or did Your siblings move to different towns so you don't see them at church anymore. Your laptop plugs you into any social network that you fancy. Even if you're born again as an evangelical Christian, life pushes you from one congregation to another. Many evangelicals get bored. And so as the generations come and go and our world changes beyond recognition, 
there is a danger that the generations coming up after us will suffer from the same kind of religious amnesia we see in these opening verses in Exodus. How do we ensure that they don't forget where they come from and who they are? If our faith matters to us, and on this Sunday Club Promotion Sunday, I hope it matters to us and to those coming up behind us, how can we help ensure that the faith is passed on from one generation to the next? And there is no panacea or quick fix for this, but research done by Care for the Family points in four directions. One, it's really important to have a warm, affirming style of parenting and grandparenting, where children feel close to their parents and grandparents, secure and supported. But simply and bluntly, if you want your children to follow your faith, they need to see you as good parents. It's also important for parents to give priority to faith so that children see that mum and dad have an authentic belief in God themselves. It's a faith that clearly influences how we live as parents, the kind of decisions that we make, how we cope with life's adversities, what our priorities are. It's not a perfect faith, but it's a genuine faith. And if it's a genuine faith, it will be a faith that's constantly in the process of growing and developing. We should never pretend we have all the answers. If we are honest with our children about our own journey of faith, we can model ways in which they can develop a growing faith that's authentic to them. And that means allowing them to develop a faith that may be markedly different from ours. Expecting your children to believe the same way that you do is rather like expecting them to wear your clothes. It doesn't work like that. What you can do is give them a good example of how faith works out in practice. It's also helpful if parents are intentional about taking opportunities to develop their children's faith in natural and everyday ways. Finding ways that are natural and not forced can be difficult. Reading, reading Bible stories, praying with younger children works well, but as they get older that can be a bit embarrassing. But talking openly about faith around the dinner table walking to church, allowing children to explore questions of faith honestly and openly without shortchanging them with off-the-peg answers. These things can help them explore a faith that's genuine for them. Then lastly, it's important to give children a sense of belonging at church, here, both in terms of being able to participate and serve and having strong relationships with people of all ages. This was one of Jack's emphases, and rightly so. Partly it's a matter of church attendance, one simple indicator of commitment is how often we as a family come to church. It's said that if parents attend church on at least a weekly basis, there is a 59% likelihood that children will adopt their faith. But if church attendance drops down to once a month or less, the likelihood of children taking up that faith for themselves drops down to 31%, less than one in three. That's partly because church helps with developing a network of supportive relationships. In teenage years, children become increasingly independent of their parents. But if they have a strong network of friends supporting and affirming their faith, that can help them stay on the rails. But bottom line is, no matter what we do, it's out of our control. And the best thing we can do is pray for them and continue to live our lives with integrity. And recognise that the world they are growing up in is vastly different to the world in which we grew up. Stuff we took for granted is open to question or simply jettisoned today. 
there are far fewer certainties and far more questions. The problem we face when it comes to faith is that more and more people are asking whether the Christian faith has anything valid or of value or importance to say in today's society. And I firmly believe that it does. Particularly in the area of personal relationships. Because who we are and how we live will always speak more powerfully than what we say. And it starts with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The hallmark of the Christian. It's a daunting list. And my family, if you ask them, will be able to spell out to you all the ways in which I fail. Yet we need to seek to model these qualities in our families and in church and do so in conscious and explicit dependence on Christ. In that way, at least, we can set an example to the generations coming up behind us about the kind of people that following Jesus has made us to be. And maybe if we do nothing more than give them good memories of time spent with us, of who we are and how we lived, then that will come back to them in years to come. But perhaps most importantly, it's to show that what makes us tick is our faith. That's what drives us and motivates us and guides us and helps us live our lives. And remember too, that in a changing society where our faith changes and develops and grows all the time, the only one who is the same yesterday, today and forever is Jesus Christ. That's why he's the one in whom we can put our trust. The same yesterday, today and whatever the future might bring. Let's pray. Lord, some of us come from families of faith. We look back to parents or grandparents or great-grandparents and we thank you for their influence upon us. Some of us have been born again into the faith with no history of Christian influence. Thank you for your grace upon us. For all those who have children or grandchildren and are concerned for their faith, hear their prayers, protect their family, guide them in right paths, and at the right time, may memories of our faith, our example, surface in their minds and ignite the faith that is dormant within them at the moment. Help us to honour you by how we live. Honour you in a way that they will recognise and remember in years to come. In Jesus' name. Amen.